So let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your guidance and your blessing tonight as we begin to study the Old Testament prophet Hosea. We pray that as we read and study his prophecy, his words, that we would see also the need of our own nation and people to repent and our own need to repent and to look to you for mercy and forgiveness in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your guidance and blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. And tonight, as I said, we'll be studying the book of Hosea, which is uh, in the order that they're in our Bibles, would be the first of the minor prophets. Uh, they're called minor prophets not because any of their prophecy is anything less than major. Uh, they're called minor only because, uh, for the most part, they are shorter uh, books of the Bible instead of longer ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which, you know, Isaiah's uh, and, and Jeremiah, you know, talking, you know, 40, 50 uh, chapters and, and, uh, or more. And uh, these, I think Hosea's about the longest at 13 chapters or close to it. Uh, even Ezekiel is quite a bit longer. So uh, Daniel's, not that much longer, but he's not classified with the minor prophets uh, in in the way that they were divided. But anyway, so Hosea is the first one in our Bibles. Uh, not all not all Bibles have the same order. Uh, the way that the scriptures were divided for the Jewish Old Testament is different than what we have in our own Bibles, uh, just as far as the order of the books, not not the books themselves. Uh, Hosea is a, is a rather difficult book in some ways, and yet it's very relevant to our times because our times today are so much like the time of Old Testament Israel. And just to, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen uh, because I want to show you a, a few things. So I'll share my window with you, and you should see a window with all of you on it. Uh, but that way I can put up uh, this page from uh, Google, my Google Drive. I'll make it a little bit bigger here so that you can see it, which I think I will. This shows a, kind of a, a, a diagram, and I, and I did put this... Uh, on our church calendar, on the link, if you care to download it, you can also download it from there. But it shows the approximate dates of of the uh, kingdoms. Uh, first of United Israel, uh, it shows, uh, you know, Samuel being the prophet, Saul being the king from about 1050 to 1010 uh, before Christ. So we're talking, you know, a little over a thousand years before Christ. And then David, uh, uh, with Nathan being the prophet uh, from 1010 to 970, and then Solomon from 970 to 930. Again, Nathan is still prophet during uh, part of this time. Uh, but at that point, the kingdom is divided. And you can read about that in 1 Kings uh, chapter 12 and 2 Chronicles 10, I believe it is. Uh, here, 
after Solomon's death, Rehoboam, as Solomon's son, uh, took over the kingdom, but instead of dealing kindly with the northern tribes of Israel, uh, he was going to increase their taxes, their burden, in order to carry on, you know, his kingdom. Uh, they asked for him to lower it, and he decided to increase it instead. And so the northern tribes broke away. Uh, so here he is left with uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin are in the south, and in the north you have uh, Jeroboam. Uh, he's, we call him Jeroboam one because there's another Jeroboam that's coming later that we call Jeroboam two. Not that they call themselves Jeroboam one and two. And so the kingdom is divided, and then you have a listing of the kings in Judah on the left in yellow and Israel in green on the right, and it shows the time that, you know, that they ruled, the approximate years before Christ. And we come to Hosea the prophet uh, in, he's a prophet in the north, and he is a prophet. If you look down, let me go to move this up to the middle of the page. He is a prophet at the same time as Isaiah and Micah in the south, possibly Jonah uh, going to Nineveh, and Amos in the north. Uh, and so he, he was a prophet uh, during the reigns of the last kings of Israel before the Assyrians uh, carried them away. If you look here, it lists the uh, kingdoms, and we'll, we'll look at these names. Jeroboam II, the second Jeroboam, uh, he was a prophet during a part of Jeroboam's reign, uh, during the reign of Zechariah, Shalom, Manahem, Pekahiah, and Pekah, and Hoshea uh, then is the king who is taken away into a captivity when the Assyrians conquered uh, Israel in about 722 B.C., and I, I show you this just to kind of give you a little bit of a time frame as to, you know, when Hosea was prophesying, when he, you know, the, where this book comes from. And it's important also to note that before Hosea, uh, because this will be mentioned, before Hosea, we have some other uh, wicked kings uh, who reigned for a time uh, in the north. Uh, if I can find him here, uh, I don't know if you can see my cursor or not, but uh, Ahab, 874 to 853, uh, was a very one of the most evil kings. Uh, his wife was known as Jezebel. Uh, her name was Jezebel, and, and we still, you know, people talk about uh, use Jezebel as as a as an expression today. You know, if if a, a woman is really evil and uh, conniving, you know, sometimes people refer to her as being a Jezebel. Uh, well, Ahab was a very wicked king, and his wife prompted him to do much evil. And one significant event that uh, she is involved. Well, there's several, but uh, when Elijah the prophet 
uh, he was trying to kill Elijah uh, because Elijah had prayed that there would not be rain for until he said there would be rain. And so for three and a half years, they're having a drought, uh, no rain at all. And so he's seeking to find Elijah. And Elijah has this contest between uh, the true God and Baal, uh, the false god that Jezebel introduced to you know, the worship of Baal into Israel. And they set up the two altars and uh, the, the prophets of Baal are supposed to pray to Baal and for him to send down fire. And, you know, they're trying all day and even cutting themselves and dancing on the altar and doing all their uh, pagan type of prayers in order to get Baal to send fire. And then nothing happens. And so finally, at the end of the day, when it's time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah uh has sets up his altar and uh, puts the sacrifice on the altar and digs a ditch around the altar and puts water in the ditch. They, they, they douse everything so that the ditch is full and everything is soaked. And he prays to God and God, the true God, and God sends down fire. And then he kills, he goes and kills the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel is after him. Uh, Jezebel wants to kill him. And so he runs out into the wilderness and he thinks he's the only one left. Uh, and God said that he still had 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And another thing about Jezebel is uh, a little, I think this would be at a later date, uh, Naboth had a vineyard right next to uh, Ahab's palace. And of course it was Naboth's inheritance. It was to be passed down uh, from him to his children and continue in the family. It was their inheritance in Israel. Uh, but Ahab wanted it and wanted to buy it, but Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. And uh, Jezebel says, you know, aren't you the king in Israel? You know, don't worry about it. I'll get this for you. So she she hires a couple of, of men or appoints a couple of men to make a false accusation against Naboth that he had blasphemed God and the king and... Uh, they put him to death, and then uh, Ahab takes the vineyard of Naboth for his own. Uh, and so we have, uh, this will come into play. Uh, another person that's on this chart that will come into play is Jehu, who reigned from 909 to 886 approximately, who... Uh, Maybe I, I got that wrong here. Yeah, Jay, no, it's 841 to 814. I was looking at a, a prophet by the name of Jehu. Uh, Jehu uh, took over the kingdom. You know, he's anointed in order to deal with the evil sons of Ahab. But he took over the kingdom and he was just ruthless. Uh, he killed all of Ahab's descendants, and Ahab had 70 sons, and he had, uh, they fled to Jezreel, which we'll read about, uh, Jezreel, and uh, rather than, you know, appoint one of them in king and fight against Jehu and his armies, the people of Jezreel said, we'll be your servants, and so Jehu says, I want the heads of all Ahab's sons. So they send the heads 
of all Ahab's 70 sons to Jehu in baskets or on platters. Uh, and so he destroyed uh, he, he destroyed the, the sons of Ahab, the king. Uh, very, very ruthless man and, and shed a lot of blood. Uh, and so that's tells us just a little bit about the time of Hosea. Uh, I, when you go down to 782 to 753, the reign of Jeroboam, the two actually, uh, God was really, he was an evil king, but God really blessed Israel during that time. Uh, they were being very prosperous. Things were going good, much like in our own country. Uh, but it was the beginning of the downhill ride to the end. I mean, things just went downhill from there. And Hosea began his prophecy during the reign of Jeroboam too, and continued up until uh, pretty much up until the end. And one other thing I should explain before uh, we get into the book itself is the worship of Baal uh, or Baal. Uh, this was really a sad part of Israel's history, but not only Israel, uh, many of the surrounding nations. Uh, Baal or Baal was worshipped in uh, by the Canaanites, uh, and in different forms, he was worshipped. He was worshipped by other Middle Eastern countries and even in Egypt. Uh, uh, he, I think he's called Bel in uh, uh, Babylon. Uh, he, he is referred to as Hadad. Uh, some say he was the, supposedly the son of Hadad, uh, but he's also called Hadad and worshipped as Baal, uh, which gives a whole new meaning to Ben-Hadad, means your son of Hadad was viewed as the one of the head head over all the gods, like kind of like Zeus or uh, Jupiter was in Greek or Roman uh, worship of their pagan gods. And uh, Asherah, I believe, was regarded as Baal's wife and sister. And Baal was a god of of uh, thunderstorms or storms and rain and also a god of fertility. Uh, and Baal, the name Baal or Baal actually means Lord uh, or, you know, a prince, one who is overall. And so he was kind of viewed as the head god. And, and many of these nations had, like the Greeks and the Romans, had kind of a whole pantheon of gods. And, you know, there's fightings and interrelationships between these gods. Uh, but Baal is kind of viewed as, you know, the Lord or the head God. And he's often portrayed, uh, sometimes portrayed as the image of man wearing a uh, helmet with bull's horns on, but sometimes actually portrayed by uh, a bull or an ox or a, even, I think, probably even a calf. Uh, when the Israelites worshipped the Lord, L-O-R-D, in Exodus 32, uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that have brought thee out of Egypt. Well, they're actually 
worshiping God by his name, but they're substituting the pagan views of Egypt and uh, the surrounding pagan nations. And so they really didn't even have a good idea of who uh, Yahweh or Jehovah was uh, because they would, they viewed, you know, many of them viewed Jehovah as, you know, the same God that's being worshiped by all the nations around them as a, as a calf or an ox or a bull. Uh, Baal worship often included human sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of infants and children. Uh, just to give you a little bit of uh, historical background, uh, there, I have an archaeological, archaeological note. Uh, this comes out of the University of Chicago. Uh, the Oriental Institute excavating at Megiddo, which is near Samaria, found in the stratum of Ahab's time the ruins of the temple of Ashtoreth, goddess wife of Baal. Just a few steps from this temple was a cemetery where many jars were found containing remains of infants who had been sacrificed in this temple, uh, one of which is shown. There's actually a figure of a glass jar that is broken open and has uh, bones, bones in it of a child. Uh, prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth were official murderers of little children. Uh, it's kind of a sidelight on Elijah's execution of the prophets of Baal because they were the ones who uh, would take these children and put them, uh, you know, sacrifice them to, to Baal. It's probably also why Jehu was, God permitted Jehu, at least for a time, to be so ruthless in his dealing with the sons of Ahab because of their worship of Baal. Another thing that is kind of interesting, at least it is to me, is that oftentimes uh, these pagan deities were worshipped with names that are actually names of the true God. Uh, for example, El is, is viewed as the head of these pagan deities, uh, and Elohim is the Hebrew name for God. You know, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It uses Elohim. Uh, the Israelites used the name Jehovah in reference to the golden calf. And many times these, you know, pagan deities have some connection to the truth it's just that that's so perverted and twisted that is no longer at all the truth. In the same way as today, you know, the uh, Islam worships Allah. Well, what does Allah mean? Allah is uh, the Arabic word for God. And so they're worshiping God, but they're not worshiping the true God because they say God is one and there's no God but Allah. Uh, and so... They're not worshiping the true God. They've rejected the triune God of the Bible. They don't believe Jesus is the son of God. They don't believe in his redemption. They believe in being able to please God by their life. Uh, and so it's just so many perversions of the truth. And so there will be elements of the truth in there, but not the entire, not the entire truth. And it's usually so perverted that it, you know, it's, becomes rather horrendous. Uh, 
related to this, and God warns against it in the Old Testament, uh, not to you know to let their children pass through the fire to Molech. Uh, Molech is again a, a god, uh, and it's somehow I don't know if, exactly how, but I think it's somehow connected to Baal worship. Uh, Molech comes from Melech in the Hebrew, which is king. Uh, Baal is lord or prince, uh, but actually those who worshipped Melech or Molech, uh, Molech was heated up with fire burning inside. Uh, like the, the images I've seen show uh, it made out of brass with uh, a fire actually built in, in the belly of Melech, and the arms are outstretched together and the priest or prophets of Baal or Melech would take living children. They would heat this up. You know, fire would be burning. It would be red hot. And they would lay the children in the arms of this idol. And they would scream until they were burned to death and died. And then, you know, their remains would be burned inside the belly of this idol or buried. Uh, so... It was a, a very evil time. But lest we lest we think we're not living in evil times, you know, we may not worship images like this in the same way, and we might consider ourselves enlightened, and yet we have aborted, you know, 60-some million children in the United States uh, between the time of Roe v. Wade and the time it was overturned. And now, of course, you know, they're advocating drugs to do the abortion uh, rather than actually doing it surgically. And so we are still killing children. And though we may not be sacrificing them to some pagan deity like Baal, uh, they are being sacrificed for our own, you know, convenience or pleasure so that we can enjoy pleasure without, you know, the responsibility of raising children. And I guess that's one other thing I didn't mention about the worship of Baal. Not only did they offer children as sacrifices, uh, usually after the children were offered, uh, you know, people have described it with loud beating of drums. The children, the screams are drowned out by the drums of the children as they're burned to death. And then, you know, the, the adults, uh, engage in sexual orgies in front of this idol as a part of their worship. And uh, if you read in Exodus 32, you know, it says this, the people uh, rose up to play. And it's probably not playing basketball or volleyball or anything like that. You know, it's uh, part of this pagan worship that they were taking part in. And it's no wonder that God was ready to destroy them all uh, and make of Moses uh, a kingdom or, you know, his chosen people. And so this is the, this is kind of the setting for uh, the prophet Hosea. And I'll go ahead and put the text up here. Let me see if I can make it a little bit bigger. It might make it easier to read. 
So it, it tells us the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so you can see, if you look at that chart, where this second Jeroboam is, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And so it's during this time that uh, he begins his prophecy. Uh, we don't know a whole lot other else about Hosea than what is given to us here, except that we know that he is a prophet in the north. In other words, he is a prophet that uh, is prophesying in Israel, the northern kingdom, rather than in Judah, the southern kingdom, as you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah did. And then it says, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And so this is how it all began. You know, it's the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. God moved Hosea to prophesy. And the method that God uses here is a little bit unique. In uh, Hosea chapter 12, at verse 6, I believe it is. No. Let me find it here quick. In uh, verse 10, Isaiah 12, verse 10, he says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. A similitude is uh, a way of, you know, God trying to illustrate a point by something that is similar to uh, what is going on, and that is what's taking place here in the book of Hosea. And as we go on in verse 2, the Lord, and it's cap, all caps, it's Jehovah, said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. And so Hosea is commanded to take a wife who is, you know, a, a prostitute uh, and children of whoredom. So it, you know, it can be that as we go along, some of these children are not actually, actually even Hosea's uh, because it is illustrating how the land, how the Northern Kingdom, the Kingdom of Israel uh, had committed a great whoredom in departing from the Lord. And often in the Bible, it speaks of our relationship to God uh, in the sense of marriage and marital fidelity. So that, you know, the Bible in the New Testament tells us that we are the bride of Christ, uh, that we are to listen to Christ. He's to be, he's our head. We're to listen to him in all things. Uh, in the Old Testament, God often speaks of being uh, the husband of of God's people, Israel, and compares his people to his wife. Uh, they are betrothed or betrothed. Uh, there is a covenant uh, in which they are 
the wife of the Lord. They belong to the Lord in the same way as we in our baptism enter into a covenant uh, by which we are betrothed to Jesus. He is our bridegroom. He is our husband. And when he comes back on the last day, uh, the marriage will be consummated in that we will join together with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, and we will be forever with the Lord. And so marriage is often used to illustrate our relationship to God, and whoredom, or being unfaithful, being adulterous, is, is used to compare to being unfaithful to the Lord and worshiping idols or holding anything else uh, as more important or more precious to us than God himself. And so we read that Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And so Hosea marries Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And of course, here there are there are different views about uh, whether Hosea actually married a prostitute or an adulteress or or not. And if you are, and it kind of follows uh, some major divisions within Christianity. Uh, if you are in the line of you know like the. I always say Baptist, but it includes a lot of other churches that uh, strongly emphasize, you know, it would include a conservative Methodist and, uh, and others that strongly emphasize uh, righteous living. They would say, well, since God elsewhere commanded that, you know, we not marry uh, one who is unfaithful or one who is impure and, in fact, if a woman was guilty of adultery or being unfaithful to her betrothed, she could be put to death. And if a man married a woman and found that uh, she was unclean, uh, that she was not a virgin, she could be put to death. Uh, so there are some that argue that say, well, you know, this is only a similitude. He didn't really uh, marry a prostitute. And then, of course, you have the, you know, the uh, conservative reform to emphasize the sovereignty of God, the foreknowledge of God, and they would. Their argument here is often that, you know, God wouldn't have Hosea marry a prostitute, uh, but rather, uh, God knew that Gomer would be unfaithful to him, but she was a virgin when he married her. But he knew that, you know, she had tendencies to be unfaithful. And so knowing this ahead of time, uh, God had Hosea marry her. Uh, and then all this happened. So it makes Hosea look as though, well, he didn't actually marry a prostitute. He just married one that God already knew would be uh, become a prostitute or a harlot. And, you know, then there's people like me. The Bible says... You know, God told Hosea, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. Uh, that, that's exactly what Hosea did. He obeyed the Lord uh, that God said to go marry a, a woman who's a prostitute. And so he went and married a prostitute. 
uh, it can illustrate God's grace and mercy and that here she's totally unworthy uh, and normally couldn't be uh, a righteous man's wife, but she's taken anyway. Anyway, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliim, and she conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And so not only his marriage is a similitude, which is providing something that people can look at and make a comparison to the message that he's preaching, but also his children. I might, I might just add, you know, to my argument about, you know, those who say that, you know, God wouldn't have had Hosea marry a prostitute uh, need to read the book of Ezekiel because God had Ezekiel lay naked in the dirt on one side and uh, he was supposed to eat dung uh, to illustrate what was going to happen to his his people and then when he was done on one side God said okay now turn on the other side and stay there for all this time uh, and so you know normally God would not have someone lay there naked but God was making a point and so God told Ezekiel to do this but anyway coming back to here to this uh, he's named Jezreel because uh, Jezreel, which was a battleground where so many of the battles were fought in the north, it was a plain, but in Jezreel is where uh, the sons of Ahab were killed. And it says that God will uh, avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and he'll cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it's probably in Jezreel where the Assyrians came and basically, you know, won their victories over the northern kingdom. And so Jezreel uh, was given this name because it pointed to the fact that God was going to avenge this blood, the wickedness of Jehu, and uh, bring an end to the northern kingdom. And he said, and it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And so God says, you know, this is where they're going to be defeated in the valley of Jezreel. And it says, and she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And it's helpful here to understand just a little bit about Hebrew. Ruhama means mercy. Lo in the Hebrew is something that you put up in front to mean no or not. And so when God says to name this daughter Lo Ruhama, uh, you know, we, we name girls grace and sometimes mercy. Uh, or charity, uh, but if you put a low in front of it, it would mean no mercy, no grace, no charity. Well, uh, what God is saying that Israel's time has run out. He had shown them mercy after mercy after mercy. He'd called them to repent. Even 
even Ahab, when God, you know, spoke of the, about the judgment of Ahab and Jahab put on sackcloth and was somewhat penitent, God spared Ahab and, and this judgment didn't come in his lifetime, but came after his lifetime because God showed him mercy. Certainly he wasn't deserving of that mercy. And, you know, I have to say, if we look at our own lives, God is so merciful to us. Uh, if God dealt with us as we deserved, you know, we would all be condemned. Uh, God would show us low ruhama, no mercy, but he shows us mercy after mercy. But in this case with Israel, you know, his time, their time had run out. They abused his mercy again and again and turned back to idol worship, worshiping Baal, sacrificing their children, uh, practicing sexual orgies, uh, doing all these things in their pagan worship and rejected the true God who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them through the wilderness, who gave them this land, who you know provided all these things for them and was working to send their Messiah and Savior to redeem them from sin and death. And yet they just continually rejected him. And so God says, I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But he said, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. And here uh, I invite you to read, you know, in, in uh, the books of the kings uh, about this history that uh, God did show mercy to the house of Judah. When the Assyrians came, they also uh, took many cities of Judah and, you know, were surrounding Jerusalem, but they were defeated, not by anyone's bow or a sword or by battle, but the Lord God himself defeated them. He showed mercy upon the house of Judah. He remembered his promise to David and for, their, for David's sake, continued to show mercy upon the house of Judah. Uh, it's also kind of a reminder to us that, you know, no matter how many weapons of war our nation has, no matter how much technology we have, if God isn't with us, you know, we're going we're gonna to lose, we're going to fall. But if God is with us, even if we have none of these things, uh, God's going to protect us and show us his mercy. Then it says, now when she had weaned Lo Ruhama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Lo Ami, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Ami, Am, uh, the, the first part of this, Am, means people, and the I ending uh, is an indication of my people. But again, notice the Lo in front of it. This child, this son, was named Lo-Ami, not my people, because God is saying to Israel, ye, uh, which indicates it's you plural, ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. And so 
here this sun also is a sign, a similitude to the nation of Israel uh, by his name that they are no longer God's people and God is no longer their God. You know, God is turning them over to destruction and judgment. It's too late uh, to turn back because, you know, God's spirit has departed and the judgment is coming. And yet, even though he says that he's not going to have mercy upon the house of Israel, uh, that they are not his people, that he's going to carry out judgment upon uh, in Jezreel for the sins, the bloodshed of Jehu. Then at verse 10, he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, which would be Lo-Ami, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. In other words, even though God is going to permit the northern kingdom to cease to exist and the people to be carried, you know, to be killed or carried away into captivity, yet at the end of this, there is a promise that God is not going to forsake his people, but that God is going to keep his promise. And so even though this judgment is going to come, uh, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it's going to come to pass that where it was said unto them, you're not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you're the sons of the living God. Uh, if you listen to some preachers, they will talk about uh, how God preserved uh, the Jewish people, even scattered among all the nations over all these years so that they've kept their identity, and how in 1948 God established the nation of Israel again, and, you know, so many of the Jews have come back to Israel to live there in that land. Uh, and they say, well, this is a fulfillment of God's mercy. Well, God certainly has showed mercy to the Jews and giving them a, a land, a place to live and a way to, a means to protect themselves from those who, you know, wish they would, could be destroyed. But is this the fulfillment of, of this passage? And I, I, I think we have a, a better and more biblical explanation to the fulfillment of this passage than, uh, modern-day Israel, which is, you know, really a secular nation. There's a certain percentage of uh, those who live there who uh, are, you know, pretty conservative as far as the Jewish faith, uh, but, and there are many Christians who live there, but it's really not a fulfillment of this passage. In Romans chapter 9, uh, it talks about, you know, God showing mercy as, as he wills. And at verse 23 and following, especially verse 25, 
Uh, it even quotes Hosea. But it says, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, as he saith also in Hosea, Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. And so according to the Apostle Paul, uh, the fulfillment of this passage is taking place in that some of the Jews, some of those who held to the Jewish faith, some physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are being brought to faith. That included, you know, the Apostle Paul. Most of the apostles are all the apostles who are of the Jewish faith, or of the Jewish background. But it also says, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So all of us who are brought to faith in Jesus Christ are also a fulfillment of this passage. So that we are grafted in and where we are, you know, where we were called not my people or not beloved of God. Now we are called, you know, my people or God's people and we are his beloved and we are called the children of the living God. Well, how are we children of God? You know, the Bible tells us in Galatians that ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, uh, male or female, uh, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. So all who have faith in Christ are this gathering of the children of Israel. We are grafted in. And so we are a part of uh, this nation, this kingdom, you know, where God is gathering in the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, so that we will be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it's true that, you know, where we were, you know, called, not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you're the sons of the living God. Another passage which brings that out is in St. Peter's first epistle. In uh, chapter 2, chapter 2 is where it speaks about, you know, us being built up a spiritual house. Uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, it says, To whom coming, talking about uh, Christ, as unto a living as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded." Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, 
a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so here certainly is an allusion to the prophecy in Hosea, where we were not a people, where we were lo-ami, and now we are the people of God, where we were lo-ruhama, had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy in Jesus Christ. And so the children of Judah, the children of Israel, uh, even though they were two separate nations, here it speaks of that, them being gathered together. They appoint themselves one head. And who is that head? It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one who brings us together and gathers us together into his church. Uh, they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Uh, so what a beautiful picture of, you know, God's, this prophecy points to the judgment which is going to take, take place against Israel because of their rejection of God, their worship of Baal and Asherah or Ashtaroth uh, and the pagan deities. And yet, even though God's judgment is going to come, yet God is still going to establish his kingdom, that he's going to save some of the Jews, and he's also going to uh, bring the Gentiles in and bring them to faith in Christ and bring them in as a part of uh, God's people, Israel. We're, we're grafted in, even though, you know, technically, you know, we're not descendants of Abraham, yet we're grafted in and we're made children of Abraham through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to go into chapter two, but I know we're going to run out of time. So we, we might just consider, well, how, do this, how does this relate to our day today? And I, I think probably the closest thing that we have to see is the religion and the worship in Israel, and it also infected Judah uh, numerous times, especially under the wicked kings, uh, was very syncretistic. By syncretistic, I mean they brought in all kinds of false ideas into their worship and sometimes maybe used names for God, but they did not truly worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because uh, they worshiped false ideas of God and in, you know, terrible ways, sacrificing their children, uh, having sexual orgies, temple prostitutes, all these things were a part of the pagan worship. And yet in our own time, uh, for the sake of, you know, our freedom to do as we please, we sacrifice millions of children. Uh, we still have sexual orgies, uh, at least in the sense of, you know, I think what, I think it often happens that, you know, what was looked at, you know, you had to wait a while when you dated a girl before you even got your first kiss. And, uh, you know, now uh, it's not a first kiss. It's, you know, how soon are you in bed together? And the, all of society is just 
move toward a focus on sex and sexual relationships, you know, our dress and commercials, all these things just focus so much on, you know, these satisfying our pleasures and appealing to sinful pleasures. And instead of trusting in God, we're trusting in everything else. Uh, instead of trusting in God to provide for us and protect us or to honor him, we, we look at, you know, these scientific theories of our time, which really are you know, nothing but fallacy. And uh, we reject, use these things to reject the truth about God. And when it comes to religion, most people think that it doesn't really matter what religion you are, but we're all worshiping the same God. We do it in different ways, but it's all the same God. Well, this is the same kind of thought that, you know, people had in pagan times that uh, the only one, the only God they really didn't want to worship was the one true God because uh, that worship was exclusive. God said, don't have any other gods before me. Don't, don't worship any other gods. Don't make any images. And so the true faith was rejected, uh, but people sought to bring everything else in. And the, the Jews did that too with their temple worship, even introducing pagan worship in the temple worship uh, at the end of you know the, the time of Judah. And so we're living in very similar times. And the prophecy of Hosea is very applicable to us in our times, that the time of God's mercy may very soon run out that God will say to us, you know, I'm not going to have mercy anymore. I have been patient all this time and have called you to repent and you keep turning back to your idolatry. And God may say, you know, you were my people, but you're not my people anymore. Uh, and yet by the grace of God, even if this happens to America and the American people and God's judgment comes, yet God still has promised that he will make, establish his kingdom and that he will gather together his elect out of all the nations and bring them together unto Jesus, under, under Jesus Christ and preserve them unto his heavenly kingdom. And so we can take comfort even in the midst of the judgments which will come. And, uh, I'll save uh, chapter two. I was going to go th through the first three chapters tonight. I didn't get very far, but save chapter two for next time. And we'll see a little bit more about Ami and Ruhama and, and uh, what happens in, as regarding uh, Gomer and uh, how that illustrates uh, the message of Hosea to the people of Israel. And I, I just can't say enough how merciful God was in sending prophets and calling them again and again to repent and to show them their sins, their errors, and trying to call them back to himself. And yet, you know, they continued to reject until finally God's judgment had to come. So any questions or comments tonight? If if not, we'll we'll go ahead and close with prayer and we'll continue in
chapter two next time, and maybe we'll make it a little bit further. So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy upon us that even though we have sinned against you again and again and turned aside and made other things more important than you and uh, disobeyed your commandments, yet you have shown us mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, that you forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. And we pray that you would move us to truly repent of our sinful ways and look to the cross of Jesus for mercy and forgiveness, that we would hold fast to him and look forward to that day when you come to take us to be with you forever in your eternal kingdom. We pray your blessing upon each of us, and we pray again, especially tonight, for Linda, that you would grant her healing and strength as she recovers from her broken hip and surgery. We ask you these things and pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have a good night. Good night.